listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. For his new book, Films of Endearment, Michael Koreski watched 10 movies from the 1980s with his mother, a fellow movie lover. This simple premise becomes a way to talk about the decade's bounty of great acting by women, and then to reflect on the many facets of his mother's life and their relationship together. I've been reading Michael's writing for years in Reverse Shot, The Criterion Collection, and Film Comment, but he still makes it look easy here as he mingles film criticism, family biography, and social history with his characteristic insight and sensitivity. For this episode, I invited Michael to talk about a few films from the book, and we were extremely fortunate to be joined by the esteemed critic Molly Haskell. Haskell's influential body of work has spanned The Village Voice, New York Magazine, and Vogue, and includes the landmark critical work From Reverence to Rape. It's a wonderful pairing of critical sensibilities and enthusiasms for the work of the actresses talked about in the book, spanning films from 9 to 5 to Mommy Dearest to Crossing Delancey. Let's go now to our conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a special edition of the podcast uh, with two very special guests. I've been doing some reading lately, uh, so I couldn't resist talking about the book I've been reading because it's a very good one. And that is Films of Endearment by Michael Koreski. And I thought instead of doing our usual of talking about recent films we've been watching, we can look at the movies that the book is is looking at because the structure of the book is, is really interesting. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to welcome my guests, uh, beginning with Michael. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. It's so delightful to be back here talking to you and, of course, to be talking to our special guests, which I'm very excited about. Yes. With the book came a couple of notes about critics who had read it. So when I saw Molly Haskell on the book, I absolutely had to ask. Fortunately, here we are. So please welcome critic Molly Haskell. Well, thank you for having me. It's my first time on your show, which I love. So I'm delighted to be here and especially with Michael. Yes, this is a kind of perfect combination of, of themes and, and movies. Michael, would you like to tell us a bit about the general outline of, of the book? Sure, Nick. Hey, it's my favorite part having to describe having to describe. The book. <laughs> um, every every everyone loves this part. So, first of all, can I just say this kind of feels like a reunion having the three of us together. It's been so long. I'm I'm very I'm I'm just very excited. Um, We've done this before, haven't we? Yes. In other contexts. Mm -hmm. So the book Films of Endearment is both a look at the 1980s in terms of uh, female representation, representation of women characters, and also that is dovetailed with a personal history and a personal journey through my own mother's um, life. So the idea, the basic parameters of the book as I set them up were that I would go back through the 1980s, rewatch these films with my mother that all had strong female characters and that she had first introduced me to when I was growing up in the 80s. One film from each year, 1980 to 1989. And each of those films would bring out a theme that would reveal something about my mother's life that I either had never discussed with her or that I really didn't know anything about. So I hope that the book functions on those two levels at once throughout. And that, and through that um, structure, I was hoping to find a little bit of a looseness. In other words, I, I, I always have to give myself pretty strict parameters when I write. It's just It just helps me get the job done. But within that, 
it gives me the license to riff a little more freely on um, a variety of topics. So I, I, I really wanted this to be an expansive book that still feels very tight and intimate. Well, I, this, I was just jump in and say what I loved about it. I mean, I got it in manuscript, of course. And what I expected, maybe a little prejudice on my part, but what I expected since, since Michael writes a column from the gay perspective, and here were all these women characters, I thought it might be this kind of gay cult hagiography, you know, the sort of thing of attracted to the glamour and suffering of sort of diva stars, but it's not that at all. And it's so, it just struck me as unusual because it's really about women as human beings coming into their own in a unique period. So I think it's partly Michael's sensibility that this expansive sort of sensitivity that he has even to the whole idea of strong women, but also seeing through the eyes of his mother. So it makes a kind of wonderful dual perspective. Um, The only one that I just watched it again, so I thought I'd bring it up. The one that comes closest to the sort of gay cult film, although you don't see it from that perspective, is Mommy Dearest. Mm -hmm. So I just watched that last night and I thought we'd talk about it. You talk a little bit first, because a a lot of what you do is you deal with what Faye Dunaway had to go through. In mm. doing that, it's an incredible performance, and that she that she didn't get nominated for an Academy Award just just strikes me as is completely baffling. Well, not not only was she not nominated for an Academy Award, she won the Raspberry for Worst Actress. It was oh. it was considered, you know, it was it was considered um, not just a failure, but some kind of demonic insult, right? Yeah. Also, because Christina Crawford's book had had been disbelieved. Nobody wanted to believe that wonderful, glamorous Joan Crawford could have done anything like that. So I think that also um, spilled over into the reception of the film. Well, you know, it's interesting to bring up uh, Mommy Dearest as is an interesting one to bring up as the first film from the book to talk about because it's so anomalous in the book. I know. I'm sorry to do that. I just... (laughs) No, but I think it, I think it, it kind of exemplifies what I was going for. Thank you very much for everything that you say, by the way. And before we get too deep into it, I, I also wanted to say that, Molly, you were crucial in the creation of this book. And when I was coming up with the idea for it, I had a conversation with you. And we had a really fantastic time, at least from my perspective. It was very exciting for me to talk to you about these things because your writing has always been so incredibly influential, obviously on the whole culture, but on me, especially when I was um, first reading about films as political and sociopolitical objects. And, you know, this this sort of thesis that I have about the 80s being the last great decade for mainstream Hollywood actresses, um, I really wasn't feeling confident about it until I spoke with you, actually. You do what uh, what I think all great film writing does, is you make one rethink and reevaluate the films. I mean, not that I didn't like most of these, but maybe I, I hadn't fully appreciated them or hadn't seen as much in them as I might have. And that's what I, I'm so grateful to you for that. I appreciate that. And also I, I myself have my own skepticism and doubts about, you know, the seriousness of this as an area of study. Right. I mean, these are not really films that within my so-called cinephile circles, I am encouraged to take particularly seriously. I'm, I, I think that, you know, there has been a nice eroding of boundaries between high and low in recent years within cinephile circles, but that doesn't mean that the middle has become particularly open or the people are open to the middle. Right. And the mm-hmm. films in the book are very much things that one might dismiss as, 
as middlebrow for the most part. Mm -hmm. These, are, these mm -hmm. are mainstream, for the most part, with a couple exceptions, these are mainstream studio films that are about people and about emotions and about romance and about parent-child relationships. And they come in different genres and different sizes and you know different levels of success perhaps, but these are movies definitely worth looking at and taking seriously. And in a way it helps kind of validate the, the feeling that I had about that when I was a child, when I just wasn't interested in these big eighties movies that all of my friends seemed to care about and my older brother particularly seemed to care about. The movies that I, I mean, I wanted to watch The Color Purple over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> I didn't want to watch Commando. I had no interest in guns. Um, yeah. So I think that it's interesting. If you take a step back, you'll say that the '80s is also this era. These these women were in these incredibly mature roles. Um, these women were in their 30s for the most part, 30s and 40s. They were not sex pots. They were not, um, you know, captured in various uh, forms of undress. Mm -hmm. But you know, in a lot of '80s films of different genres, these were these were women who were kind of um, the auteurs of their own films. Right? They're still with. <laughs> still were very few female directors working in the 80s, just a handful. But the stars themselves were controlling these narratives in a way that was very interesting. And that I thought really tied it into the things that you always wrote about Molly, mm. uh, especially in uh, your book From Reverence to Rape. How can we give these women their agency or how can we acknowledge that they have this agency through their star personas? And I thought it was fun to bring back that idea and to talk about that in the context of my mother who introduced me to these films. They, they just meant so much to her. She wasn't studying film necessarily. She took film very seriously, but she was just identifying. And then through her, I began to identify with these women. Just to quickly jump in, I mean, that's something that I really loved about the book is the way, you know, movies kind of live in, in, in a family and, and live through, you know, watching things together and, and then talking about them. You know, the conversations that you, you recount with your mother and, and the kind of ongoing dialogues and, and you know, recurring sort of debates and, and touchstones about the films gets us so deep into the movies. I mean, but yeah, sorry, anyway, you, you were going on to say. Well, I mean, well, thank you. I guess, yes, because in, in, in life, I, I kind of recoil and shrivel away from a lot of emotional openness and connection <laughs> but when it's movie related mm. this gave me a lot of leeway to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about without having to feel like I was prying or that I was being in any way emotionally exploitative or manipulative in trying to get you know my mom and myself to open up about things movies are a great conduit to, for that mm. for that conversation especially for for us mm. and you know mommy dearest I'll, I'll go back to that Molly since you mm. brought it up and also because I think it's a really fascinating example it's a great it exemplifies, you know, exactly what I was going for, because yes, I, I obviously make gestures towards its camp status and its status as a gay film. And that's important in a way because it kind of feeds into another chapter that's more about queer identity. But it's much more interesting to talk about that movie in terms of my mother and my grandmother. And it, once I started putting the pieces together, I realized it resonates in a lot of ways throughout different points of my life and my mother's life and my grandmother's life. My grandmother, who was also a movie lover, who was a silent movie lover, you know, she goes way back mm -hmm. and she was a Joan Crawford fan. And she, she loved Joan Crawford so much that she refused to believe Christina Crawford when she came out with that story and she came mm -hmm. out with her book in the 70s. So by the time that the movie came out, she refused to watch it. My grandmother thought that Joan Crawford was a 
perfect example as she was as an, like up by her bootstraps hollywood star a relatable hollywood star and you could say nothing wrong about her because my grandmother also believed so deeply in the the ideas the idea of a, of a movie star right these kind of spotless images that were being created for her and she collected you know photo play and fan magazines so the idea of a film that was going to tear down that illusion was just anathema to her and then it just so happened that my mother was dealing with a lot of trauma from her childhood because of my grandmother so not only was my grandmother denying that Joan Crawford was an abuser she herself was an abuser and this started to become a story right so mommy dearest is this this film that we that my mother and I enjoy and laugh at and enjoy as a camp classic in a sense because it's so over the top but it's a film that we also take very very seriously and so we have to constantly negotiate the humor and the tragedy the abuse and the camp it's all happening at once and it's all incredibly difficult and hard to negotiate so I thought it would be a, a tricky thing to talk about Faye Dunaway and Joan Crawford and my mother's own trauma and my own camp response to a movie that I know is also very serious so it became a little complex well that's what's so great about it I think it's what's so rich about it that you managed to capture all these different strains and it's also what most people can't do and it's why reviews tend to oversimplify or sort of I think relieve I'm not always but sort of relieve the reviewer in that something like this it's hard to know what to make of it I think part of the problem when I was looking at it now I thought it really is a kind of monster movie and it's it's harrowing but in a horror movie you would have a denouement where the monster is punished or somehow expunged I mean there would be a reckoning but somehow you're left with this malignity and I mean I think Faye Dunaway is incredible because she absolutely captures Crawford sometimes the shots I, I thought it was Crawford but she also gives as much dimension as there is, which is not a lot to the person. And I think when people talk about it as a sort of camp stereotype, it's because the character herself is really sort of monomaniacal. You know, I mean, she is she is the star and that's it. I mean, she doesn't really have, I mean, the private life is a kind of in quotation marks. It's something really for show as well. And I think it's just sort of hard to grapple with that and, and also to, to feel that this horror that she's perpetrated on her daughter has been unavenged. I mean, even though she said it says at the end, she's going to get the last word. It's still sort of horrifying, but, but kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I say at one point is Faye Dunaway, is this somehow one of the worst performances ever given, or is it somehow one of the best performances ever given? And mm-hmm. it's both. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I guess the truth is somewhere in the middle as it tends to be. I don't know. I think it's both extremes in a way. That's what's wild about it. I mean, why else would people want to watch this film over and over again and enjoy yeah. it and be horrified and be amused yeah. if, not, if this wasn't one of the most charismatic, dynamic performances you could ever yeah. hope to see? I mean, every intonation, every single thing that she says and does, every gesture, every flip of the hair is so mesmerizing. And I, I can't imagine a world in which this is not an example of strength, yeah. right? This, this is this is a this is a woman who completely took control of a project. She herself may disown it. She herself may be embarrassed by it, as she has said in interviews, and she actually refused to talk about it. But you know, the the, the proof remains that she made this film immortal. And you know, regardless of whether I think it's good or bad, it just com- it's completely irrelevant. Yeah. And it has a lot of dark humor, too. I mean, without that, it really would be sort of hard to take. But there's a lot of really 
black humor in it. I mean, even the, the parting scene with the lawyer there that just go on and on and on. I mean, there's just something yeah. so <laughs> film savvy about it. I don't know what it just, I found it sort of a lot more fun, but also more harrowing than I remembered. And and very and poignant. Yes. Because Faye Dunaway was at the top of her game, very recently won an Oscar and had this huge property that she was the star of. And she was playing an actress who had been labeled box office poison in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. same thing happened to Faye Dunaway after this movie. She was basically God. run out of Hollywood. She, she didn't have any major starring roles in, in Hollywood features for the rest of the 80s. She was in Barfly, of course, which is a... Uh, a smaller film that she was brilliant in later in the decade. But for the most part, it was beginning of the end for her. Well, you know, that's interesting. The whole thing of box office poison, because it's when the star, there's something that borders on the grotesque, but there's something extreme. I mean, I wouldn't say that's true of some of the other stars like Garbo or Hepburn a little bit. I mean, there's something exaggerated that people become uncomfortable with. So it happens with Crawford, you know, it happens to her in her career, though she manages to turn it to account for a while at Warner's, but eventually it sort of catches up with her. But you get tarred with this kind of performance that's, that is so um, over the top. And, it, and it's interesting. And, and I think women have a harder time because it's so, un, somehow it's unfeminine. It's not, uh, it's so unmanageable. It's so, I can't think of male stars. Well, I can't even think of that kind of performance, but it's just something very much that a woman transgresses in some way that she has to pay for. Right, right. And, and for, it's not even necessarily the grotesquerie of the performance that maybe got her excommunicated from the com- community as much as, you know, the, 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 the sense that she was commandeering a flop, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's, yes, like Dustin Hoffman didn't stop working after Ishtar, right? Right. right. I mean, it doesn't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. George Clooney didn't stop working after Batman and Robin, right? I mean, this is just these these that and that's a fairly grotesque film. Yeah. I mean, there are many examples of men who have very handily and easily overcome, you know, laying an egg, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is something about what she's she's doing, what Faye Dunaway is doing that is is kind of terrifying on on different levels in this movie. So it's almost conventional audiences must have just short circuited it. Recoil. Recoil. Exactly. Yeah. Because what, what really struck me about it is that in, in any given scene, I'm feeling a certain terror, not just from what she's inflicting on, you know, Christina, but also just because she's just clearly ruled by fear uh, about her own, you know, fame and, and status as well. And that altogether is just almost too much for, for, too for much. many people to, to bear and kind of confront. Yeah. Well, I think what it is, is that the dominant emotion there is just, it, is rage and it's expressed in all these different ways and mm. the, you know, housekeeping perfectionism and all that, but it's so violent. I mean, with, within her is this raging fire of rage and it comes from childhood. And I think, Almost maybe if they'd been, I don't know, this might have been another movie cliche, but I mean, she refers to it, of course. Her childhood was a horror. And basically the rest of her life is fear of what that did, a fear of going, she has no kind of bedrock confidence of anything. So everything is just manufactured. And beneath it is this terror of this sort of abyss. You know, it's kind of this social abyss. Um, I was just been reading E.M. Forster and talking about this Leonard Bass character Mm. in 
Howard Zinn, who oh. is, is poverty, the poverty, and he lives in, he sees these middle class people, and he knows he can can't ever attain that, and he's living with this fear of into the abyss. So I think you see that's what fires that her life and her performance. And but I don't know, maybe if you saw something, I don't mean a flashback. I don't know somehow give a context or a framework to the rage, but I don't know. I don't know if it, if it can be done. Well, I remember one of the criticisms of the film was that. Um, you know, you couldn't really understand Joan's rage and what it was that was motivating her abuse and her her fury. And, you know, one of the examples given, and I think it was in Ebert's review way back when, but the, the film is confusingly structured because in one scene, she'll win an Oscar. And in the very next scene, you have the wire hanger freak out. But that's actually yeah. interesting. That's actually what makes the film interesting. She, you don't need any kind of easy mm-hmm. psychological. No, no. And nothing will satisfy her, even winning an yeah. Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You don't have to have the chronology. Well, maybe we should talk about something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I I have another film I was going to leave, but I was just going to quickly mention yeah. that uh, partly because I was just I was watching part of it again recently. But Sunset Boulevard being like you know a previous comparison point for people mm. watching a star kind kind of you know raging against the uh, dying of the light or something like that, um, and maybe the way Sunset Boulevard is 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 something. People could recognize that trajectory, but the way mm-hmm. Mommy Dearest plays out and the way we're exposed to this and it's not, uh, you know, romanticized at all, <laughs> um, you know, that's just was not something people could take. Well, another thing is I think I, I remember thinking when I was writing about Sunset Boulevard and there were certain sort of Tennessee Williams plays where I thought it's always women that are, the, that are terrified of aging. And I think into those women are projected male fears of aging. I mean, obviously it's not is bad that the whole physical thing is not as important for men, the appearance. So they don't lose that. And, the, and that's not the terror, but they're still the, of losing their edge of losing their powers. It's all always projected onto, onto women. Mm. Yeah. You can't, you can't really think of a male, a male counterpart film. That's really interesting. So, I mean, that's, that's just one, that's one year. So that was the 19, 1981 uh, selection from, from the book. Um, and I, just as an aside, I've, I've always been a fan, Michael, of how you uh, are able to structure things year by year. You've done that a, a couple of times in a couple of columns uh, that, that you've written. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ner- nerdily a fan of, of, of how you spin that out. It works so well, too. Oh, yeah. You. Yeah. Yeah. I have to do it. I'm forced to do it. Like, my, my brain won't work otherwise. You didn't have to twist any of them into the year they were finished or something rather than they actually no. opened. It really worked that way. All released. All yeah, released. All released. Days. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the Koreski guarantee. Um, <laughs> I thought we could maybe jump back one year to like the, the movie that opens the book and that's uh, nine to five, mm-hmm. which also kind of doubles as, as, a great overture to the book because nine to five, I think you look at it from so many different levels and also come at it from just different uh, kind of writing perspectives, giving the kind of social history at the time and where we were at that particular moment. In a way, it kind of it sets the tone for the different ways you're going to explore movies and and, and your mother's life. I, I imagine that might have been one of the first movies that that you knew you were going to put in the book. Yeah, it, it, that just that is a, an example of how the the structure that built up around the book just ended up being fortuitously right. Like in, in in conceiving of the book, there are just so many different ways it could have been 
structured, right? And so if I commit myself to this one film per year and that the film is structured chronologically by film, as opposed to, you know, either when I first saw it, you know, what age I first saw it, or, you know, telling stories about my mother in some sort of linear order, I could have done those things. But I, I decided to go film by film year by year. And then within those years, it's, it kind of becomes a, a nonlinear story of my mother's life. So that was a good example of nine to five being like the perfect film to open the book because, and it was just, I lucked out in a way because it, it was released in 1980. So it kicks off the decade. It's a film that is a perfect bridge between the seventies and eighties. It feels more like a seventies film than an eighties film in its progressive politics. And it also kind of is where you start to see second wave feminism uh, ideas start to really enter mainstream comedy, mainstream filmmaking. So it, it's a good bridge film, but then also it allowed me to really start looking at aspects of my mother's life I hadn't known before, which is her working life, right? So the theme is, it's a movie about office culture and uh, sexism and misogyny. And it, it's about three women, Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, of course, who are you know fed up with their prick sexist boss and they devise an incredibly elaborate scheme of getting back at him and it feels like it hasn't lost any of its edge it's completely uncompromised it has a really satisfying ending and it just gave me a chance to ask my mother about her working life so i know some of it because my mother had a lot of different jobs my mother wasn't she didn't have this one thing she did for her whole career sometimes she 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 chose to stay home and take care of us sometimes she had to take jobs to help make money for the family and she did so many different things and once i started talking about her i realized how little i knew about what she actually did she said she had like you know seven different jobs over the course of her life. So um, it really allowed me to do a lot. It was a very fecund uh, subject matter. I love that chapter. And it also made me go back to the film, which I think I did appreciate at the time. It was one of the few things like that, but also maybe didn't as well for all the reasons you talk about early on. There was sort of mainstream this and that. But what, what struck me, and you know, all of a sudden on the Oscars the other night, there was on the soundtrack, there was Dolly Parton singing Nine to Five, and it just <laughs> thrilled me. And I thought just how buoyant that film is, how great those three women are together. I mean, there are so many things that you take for granted at the time. Mm. And they were these women stars. They weren't a lot of them, but they were. And as you say, they weren't sex objects. They weren't seen as sex objects. And it's, it's sort of amazing now that, that that even existed. And so anyway, I thought that that was a great film. And I think you talked well about the contribution of each one of them and how they, I don't know, it's just an incredibly um, sort of miraculous thing of those three women, you know, the chemistry of it. Yeah, I loved that film from an early age, I would say. I'm guessing that of all the films in the book, it's the one that I saw at the earliest age, because I think my mother brought it home. I, I think that there, there, there is an appeal that it has for children mm -hmm. that actually holding up so well and being, you know, perfect for everybody. I think that there's a, the slapstick quality that just really, really appealed to me. So I was, I was getting the concept of it and I was getting the politics of it at a very early age. And I was learning things through that film and learning the way that my mother talked about the things that were happening in that film. I think that it's an important film actually. And I think that um, anyone who is exposed to it at an early age probably was getting some really good values <laughs> impressed upon them. I mean, I had never heard the word bigot before. I never heard the word sexist before, right? 
right? I mean, mm-hmm. these these were these were ideas and principles that we're still talking about today. This was 1980, and I was realizing as a child that this was abhorrent behavior, and it do, it did it in a very accessible way. And I don't. And it's amazing how we don't have a lot of films like that. Well, I wish. Yeah, that should be shown to young people. You know, instead of you know cutting their teeth on on Star Wars or superhero, they should at least have that along with their cinematic diet, wouldn't it? I mean, it really is world shaping the way you've described it. Oh, absolutely. And and I'm, we don't have to make this into a, you know, anti-Star Wars podcast, but, you know, just from, just from my own, from my own perspective <laughs> and experience, I genuinely, this is true. If people think that I might just be saying it now because of the, the, um, you know, the monopolization of our culture from, you know, George from Lucas. From Yeah. But like, I really didn't care about those characters when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't care about them at all. I didn't care about Han Solo. I didn't care about Princess Leia. Cool, whatever. But I was really, really invested in the plight of Dora Lee Rhodes and Judy Burnley and Violet Newstead in 9 to 5. And I used to watch it over and over again because I wanted them to get what they deserved. Um, and I'm not saying that that makes me somehow greater or better or more enlightened than people who love Star Wars. What I'm saying is the film is is accessible in a way that it should be watched by children. And mm-hmm. I completely agree with what you're saying, Molly. Like, you know, maybe if more people, kids were shown that right off the bat, then, um, you know, movies with laser guns, then we'd be better off. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> me too. I mean, this is sort of a different universe in a way, but... You know, there are a lot of TV sitcoms, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s about workplaces that, you know, kind of saturating the, the culture. There's a, a lot less to watch then in a way. And I mean, as a kid, I remember watching some of those and not really always getting them. Um, and I, I can't say that I watched 9 to 5 early, but when I watched it later, I just thought, not like a revelation here, but just how those sitcoms just were were so like beyond plastic that in, in mm-hmm. most cases they're actually reinforcing the sort of things that nine to five is kind of poking fun at and, and demolishing along mm-hmm. the way so watching it more recently what struck me uh were the fantasy sequences mm-hmm. the fantasies of, of revenge uh which are elaborate and like longer than i ever remembered and it was just kind of joyous seeing them go on and on for each of the each of the characters i had kind of forgotten that Right alongside the the comedic but still realistic depiction of daily life for billions of people are these fantasies, which are also part of people's daily life. So I like the idea that you got daily like exterior lives and also kind of daily interior lives, which I think you mentioned at one point in the book that the screenwriter, you know, one of the things she heard talking to people was just so many people just wanted some way to get back at their boss. Some of the women, you know, mm. everything that they had put up with. Yeah, no, I, I, I spoke with Patricia Resnick um, when I was working on the book, who was the original screenwriter for the film. And, you know, she has a lot of interesting stories of her own and a lot and, the, you know, a lot of ironic stories, considering what her movie was about and how she felt like she was sort of sidelined by the industry after it came out and even during the production mm-hmm. of the film. But yeah, she did. A, she and Jane Fonda, actually, who was one of the original, um, the, the catalyst for the film itself, um, had done a lot of research and ahead of time. And, and like you're saying, they had interviewed all kinds of women, all kinds of offices and, and discovered that almost, almost all of them had these revenge fantasies, which does play out so beautifully and hilariously in these sequences, including the partly animated one, which I really feel is a truly subversive image when you have Lily Tomlin 
um, who at, at the time had already been, was known in the industry to, to be gay. Um, and she's dressed up as Snow White in the, in the traditional Disney outfit of Snow White, right? So that's, a, that's, that's subversive right there. And she's throwing her boss out the window and violently poisoning him. And she's doing it with this, in this outfit and this, this manner that is usually so docile, right? It's like the traditional feminine docile image of Snow, the Disney Snow White. And she becomes this um, vengeance seeking, like single-minded retribution seeking woman. And <laughs> I, I just find it to be completely hilarious. And again, something that I'm glad that I saw at an early age. And each of their performances too. I mean, you know, L- Lily Tomlin's, control of different levels and, and different nuances throughout the movie is just incredible. I mean, also, I would say in a sort of similar way, Dolly Parton's, you know, she is able to kind of keep things like sort of a slow burn so that when she, mm-hmm. she you know, when she is, does get really, really frustrated, it's, it's, it's all the more, you know, striking. But I just thought Lily Tomlin's performance is one of the greats. Yeah. She, you know, she's shifting between different nuances between comic and strategic. And I always feel She's working with her eyes so much as well, with basically being able to talk when someone else is talking, um, which is also kind of like something that happens in real life in offices. You know, I mean, her character doesn't have the freedom to speak up or against, you know, her boss, Dabney Coleman, much or most of the time. So there's always this other train of dialogue going on. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I thought it was pretty amazing. I was going to ask Molly, the the writing that you have done on the women of the 1970s was so important and influential on this book because I felt like you had laid the groundwork so perfectly and so um, definitively that though they were making the, so many strides had been were being made in the 70s politically and on a socio-political level, but that did not reflect what was actually happening on screen in Hollywood in the 70s. There were just so few films in which yeah. And in this incredibly masculinist era that women were given parts, did you feel that, um, you know, nine to five with the beginning of? Yeah, I did. And I was thinking um, one of the films that I have watched re- fairly recently is because um, I was doing something on Joan Silver, as you know, the director died recently. Yeah. And um, she was a friend and she had done uh, Crossing the Lions Sea and Between the Lines, which I also saw again. And I was in Crossing the Lions Sea, there's this wonderful moment where, I mean, Amy Irving is torn between, she sort of has a crush on it. It reminded me, I happened to see at the same time, the Joan Crawford movie, The Bride Wore Red, where she's torn between um, Robert Montgomery is the rich statusy guy who's engaged, who she wants to marry, and Franco Tone is a sort of humble uh, tour guide or something. So <laughs> <laughs> so Amy Irving is, is fascinated by this Jerome Crowby writer who's very attractive. And meanwhile, she's being pursued by Peter Reiger as the pickle salesman in this wonderful Jewish Lower East Side context. But at a certain point, she's talking to her friend and she says, a woman doesn't need a man to be complete. And even though she does get a man in the end, I mean, this, I think, could be the byword for a lot of these movies. Um, even when they do end sort of romantically, they're, they're, even with something like Baby Boom, we're toying with the idea of a woman bringing up a child by herself, of course, in the end, that's she meets Sam Shepard and who could who could pass that up but um, <laughs> basically I think don't you think a lot of them this is kind of an underlying theme can a woman does a woman need a man to complete her oh absolutely and this this you know it's funny it's a tough thing to bring up with your own mother because you know you mm. wouldn't have been born if she didn't marry your father <laughs> but, um, 
I, you know, I was interested in questions like that and, 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 you know, questions about whether she was making decisions based on social expectation or things that she truly desired, right? Like even having a baby when we, baby boom is one of the films mm-hmm. in the book that we just brought up and it, it, it opens up a lot of questions about child raising in general, my own opinions about whether I would ever want children as a gay man. Um, I don't, by the way. And her um, her decision to have children and, you know, was that just something that she knew would happen or that she decided would happen or wanted to happen or could have done without? And, you know, I, I think I think a lot of her her answers to that were surprising to me and honest. Um, but yes, that, that what did like, she say? It, what did she say? She says, I didn't really think about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and now it was automatic. It, it was automatic. Yeah. And now it's not. And that's a huge difference between then and now. I think it's yep. one of the reasons for all the, the guilt and the anxiety surrounding parent. Parenthood has become something, it's, it's a choice, but it's also a huge, a, much more of a huge undertaking in a way than it once was. Well, yeah, and, and like having the children allowed her to do different things in life, right? Like mm-hmm. she enjoyed, one of, the, one of the impetuses for the whole book was her telling me, this is before I even started writing it, telling me how much she has a deep nostalgia for the 1980s because this was when she was home with mm. the kids, me and my brother. Mm. And mm-hmm. she was, she felt like she had a, a family and a home and a place for the first time. And also that she could rent movies from the video store because VHS was a, was a new thing. And we would be able to share these memories and experiences together. So she has the, this incredible sense of nostalgia for this era that I had always assumed was more my era because this, it's the 80s. It's when I grew up. It's supposed to be my nostalgia. But the fact that we shared nostalgia for the same period was really interesting. How lucky for you both that you had that. That's the thing I kept thinking over and over again, how lucky both of you were to have had each other and to have taken such pleasure in each other and in watching movies together. It's just such a gift. I think it's what I, I, it is a gift, and I think I think it's what made it. Uh, it. It's the thing that we had that made it more bearable when my father got sick. Um, you know, we had this thing to fall back on. We probably didn't talk enough about the things we should have talked about, um, so we would often fall back on talking about movies. And at the time, it seemed like I remember being consciously um, aware that this it, it, that there was like an evasiveness about it. Why do you mean? How do you mean? Because it seemed to me that maybe obliquely you were confronting things through watching the movies, but you said you were also evading things. Was it about your father and things like that and his? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the relationship between a parent and child is just always full of evasions, even yeah. strong ones. I think I have a strong one generally with my mom, but um, which made this project possible. But yes, I think it's, it's especially. I think often for a for a gay child, mm-hmm. there's a lot of evasiveness, and mm-hmm. so you learn be evasive and you learn how to hide yourself um and because you get so used to doing that it becomes second nature mm. and there's a second language but i think mm. also yes with my yeah with my father i i yeah i find it hard to talk about yeah. really really difficult things so i remembered you know being home in when he was either when he was still alive but but very sick and in, in the nursing home or when he was um more recently when he had recently passed. And I remember being aware that I wasn't saying the things that were really on my mind or that I wanted to talk about. And so I would often just talk about other things. And often those things were movies. Mm. So movies, you know, allowed us to have this other way in to yeah. these conversations. Yeah. I mean, they're a way of talking that that's both intimate and, but yet not confronting the intimacies that you can't confront. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. It's a different kind yeah. of intimacy. It's, it's, mm-hmm. and, and it's the one that I'm most familiar with and the one mm-hmm. that I, it's the language I'm most versed in. And because they have emotions. I mean, when you're talking about most art forms, you don't have that strong emotional connection that movies provide. Exactly. Very strong. Very strong. Yeah. So strong that it, feel, it feels more real sometimes mm. than than real life. Yeah. And and the opportunity that movies give you to kind of talk through a story, talk through a narrative with with, with someone, and kind of go over something basically, and uh, in a way that it, it almost seems particular to, to movies. And and I and I just want to mention one of the movies you know that obviously gives the book its title, Terms of Endearment. One of the things in the book is that each time you're visiting with your mom and the particular movie you select is, <clears throat> I guess, kind of a surprise. And when you tell her that it's Terms of Endearment, you know, that's one moment where she says, oh, you know, this is a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you still are able to talk about and through through the, the movie. That's the tough chapter. That was that was a, that was a hard one all the way yeah. through from the beginning of even making the choice to watch it, knowing what it was going to open up in ter- you know, Pandora's box. Mm. Um, and also through to the writing, because they were just, I wasn't entirely sure where I was, how far I was going to go with it and talking about um, my dad. And, you know, I went in places I didn't expect. And so it, it revealed a lot to me about myself as a, as a writer and what I'm willing or able to do. But, um, you know, having, having the balance of the film to talk about made it a lot easier. It was, I just remember, you know, growing up when that movie was mentioned, it it was almost like a hush would fall over the room Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, terms of endearment, which is a very, is a very well-known movie is a best picture. It's one of the few, very few best picture winners ever. That's about women. Um, and it's kind of sitcom-y in a way, right. It has, it's James L. Brooks. It was his first, film that he directed he had been known for a television and you don't really know exactly where it's going from the beginning i think it's more than half of the film that plays just kind of like a straight comedy basically you know with two very very strong women with strong personas at the at the center with Shirley McLean and deborah winger playing a mother and daughter um and then it takes a very very sharp left turn as does larry mcmurtry's book uh, even in, in a more even more strange and drastic way i i I have to say, not to get too far into that, I did read that in preparation for this. It's a very odd, very odd book. There's nothing like the movie. But, mm. it, it, you know, it becomes a film about sickness. And my, my, my mother said something very acute after we watched it. She said the movie wouldn't have hit as hard if it was a story about some kind of like telegraphed childhood illness that came back, which is what Stan Magnolia is, is for example, right? It's more that um, life just... Um, can surprise you one one day you're living in a comedy with lots of one-liners and the next day you go to the doctor and he finds a lump Mm. and um it's a pretty jarring experience actually i think we're all really used to terms of endearment now i think we all know that structure very well that we forget just how shocking it was but my mother talks about it like it was one of the biggest gut punches she had ever had at the movies Mm. it 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 really is and i i had forgotten until (laughs) i rewatched it for in, in preparation and just having mother-daughter characters who are just so vibrant, so full of life, once you're caught in a movie, you have no reason to think that that's going to have an end point, <laughs> you know, that, that there has to be an, an, an end to it. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's part of what's, uh, you know, so powerful about the film. Well, I, I thought, I just wanted to mention one more, just because it, it's, it's one that's not as familiar to listeners probably. So I, I think it's, it's cool that you uh, included it in, in, in the book. And that's uh, Country. Actually, that's the one that comes up right after Terms of Endearment. It should be a movie that I think 
would be in any list of 80s films uh, that are capturing something about the period. And I, I particularly like how you weave it in. The title of the chapter is Home. And, and I really felt that just the, you know, the importance and the centrality of home and but, but also the the impermanence of it and, and the way you can come to and, and go away from it and it changes. Was that a movie that you saw in the 80s or did you watch that more more recently? Yeah. First of all, I'm curious, Molly, do you remember the movie Country? Uh, well, I vaguely remembered. I tried to I, I look at it, but it was on BritBox, which I no longer have. So I really want to see it again. But I remember just everybody having sort of rapturous feelings about Jessica Lange and, and Sam Shepard. And, and it felt very real because I think both of them, there's something that was wedded to the rural in both of them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm curious because um, it, it, it seems to have been a film that just had a lot of talk and a lot of um, buzz and great reviews when it came out. And, and no one knows, seems to know much of what it is anymore. It's directed by Richard Pierce. It starts just, just going, it was the opening night film of the New York Film Festival. Really? I'd forgotten that. And yes, Nick, I did see it way back when. And I it really bothered me um, because my mom, she, as as with everything in this, she, she, she brought it home. She popped in the VHS tape and we watched it and she had already seen it. She saw it when it came out in the theater and she felt very strongly about it. Um, there were a whole bunch of movies that came out the same year star- starring great actresses of the 80s that were about saving the farm, right? Because this was during the farm crisis. There was Sally Fields and Places in the Heart. Places in the Heart, right. There was Sissy Spacek in the River mm-hmm. and the Lang and Country. And they all came out the same year and they actually were all nominated against each other at the Oscars, oh, wow. which is sort of Sally Field one. Mm. Um, but Country is by far my favorite. Um, it's the most sobering. It's the most uh, authentic feeling. It's the grimmest. And I remember it being so grim, in fact, that when I was a child, something happens in the film. There's a, there's a, there's a suicide that happens um, halfway through the film and things are getting very, very dark. Uh, it's our neighbor. It's very upsetting and it really freaked me out. And I remember leaving the room. So I couldn't remember if I actually finished it back then because I was so upset by this movie that I think it took some years before I actually finished the movie. So I think I saw about three quarters of it when I was a kid, but it stayed lodged Mm. in my brain. And one of the reasons it stayed lodged in my brain is because my mom talks about it constantly. And she talks about it because there's an image, a recurring image of Jessica Lange at the kitchen uh, stove with one, with a baby cradled in her arm and the, the other hand either putting together sandwiches or flipping pancakes or flipping hamburgers. And it's this image of just complete dedication and courage and strength that my mother just always really identified with. And Jessica Lange was a particular favorite actress of hers. So we, we, there was a lot of talk about her mm. when I was growing up. Um, but it was, it was, it made for a great rediscovery for us because she hadn't seen it in years and it opened up all kinds of conversations, not only about home, like you said, because the chapter is also is very much about um, my feelings around my house because my mother still lives in the same house that um, I grew up in, that I was born in. And I have to come to terms with the fact that that house will not be in the family forever. And I have to come to terms with the fact that she technically doesn't really own it anymore because she has to, she has on on a reverse mortgage. So, you know, that's all she has left. She has to kind of pay it off until she's gone. So the house itself has this, this looming sense of mortality around it that I'm, um, that I'm reckoning with, even though it's still full of so many things from my childhood that I've been, things that I've been looking at since I was 
an infant, right? Um, so whenever I visit her, I'm in that mm. space again. Mm. Um, but it also gave me a chance to talk about, um, you know, <laughs> living in the Trump era and her incredibly strong response to that. Because when I was growing up, this is a movie very much about the Reagan 80s and Reagan policies. And she was just always railing against him. And I didn't know what these things meant, but I knew that that there was some sort of like political awareness or political understanding coming from her that was kind of permeating the family that, you know, we, that you can't trust this man and hence you cannot trust the president and hence you cannot trust politics. Um, so, and countries, mm -hmm. you know, one of the more political films in the, in the book. So it, it gave me a chance to explore a lot of things, mm. but it's a great movie. I mean, I, I really do recommend that people watch yeah, it. I, it. I has, really want to see it again. Mm. It has like a score. That's a problem. Like it has this kind of like every once in a while, there's like a disingenuous blast of triumphant music that feels really at odds with what you're seeing. But I think um, other than that, it's fairly impeccable. It's a movie that's showing an experience that was ubiquitous in rural areas. Just this, I mean, you only have to look at like statistics of what happened to family farms in, in, in the 80s, you know, at the same time as all kinds of like, you know, traditionalist, you know, all American political rhetoric was finding new slogans. Uh, this is what was actually happening. And so, yeah, politically, that that's it was an interesting inclusion in the book. Um, so that's another thing I like about, about the book is that, you know, sometimes we're going, we're kind of tunneling deep in, into, you know, personal experience, your family experience, your mother's experience, but also it's a way of connecting to, to uh, other experiences. I just have one question. I don't want to get into it too much, but I just want to mention one film because I took another look at it and wanted to ask about it, which is Aliens. And I just so oh. love Sigourney Weaver in that. And I think you have a, a great chapter on it. Um, what struck me is, first of all, I mean, she has this womanliness that never feels uh, foisted onto a male setting. And she's not, unlike that. I mean, I think a lot of women have come to star or some women have come to star in action films, but more, they're always more or less imitation male. They're sort of kick-ass heroines. Whereas mm -hmm. Weaver's not like that at all. I mean, she can do everything the men can do, but she doesn't dress like them. She doesn't make jokes like she, there's nothing macho about her. She doesn't dress in protective gear or carry a gun, but she can, I mean, she's as effective as, as everybody else or more so because she sort of knows what's going on. But I mean, would you agree that there's been nothing quite like that since? Yes, absolutely. And and I think what's m most interesting about that character, you know, Ripley from the Alien films, but especially the Ripley of Aliens, the second one from 1986 that I write about, is that the film is actually so much about motherhood and asking the question, what is maternal? Yes. What, who, like, what does it mean to be maternal? That film is all about that. It, down to the end where you have like, you know, two mothers fighting to the death over um, yeah. their children, basically, right? Like, you know, uh, Ripley has the surrogate child, Newt, the little girl that she, that she rescues on this planet that they've colonized. And you have the, uh, the alien mother who is furious because Tony Weaver just, you know, basically lit fire to all of her eggs. So you have these two mothers duking it out to this really violent conclusion. <laughs> An incredibly powerful image, and 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 the, but the whole film from beginning to end is about Ripley's trying to negotiate between her different selves, right? Mm -hmm. Choosing to go back to the planet to help save the colonists um, is a major a major life decision, and it, <laughs> and it's only she only does it because she finds out that her daughter, who who had aged so many years while Ripley was in hypersleep, 
coming back from the planet, that her, her daughter what became a grown woman who is now dead. That's an extremely powerful idea. And um, the movie doesn't really ever forget that. And you have these all these interesting images of, of questioning femininity. You have the, the character of uh, Vasquez, played by Jeanette Goldstein, who is the even butcher soldier, um, who is actually never made to feel odd or... No. or, or um, are other, right? She's really just one of the team. And so the film's, the sexual politics of that film is really different and really progressive, I think, than other films of that type. Yeah. It's, it's funny to think that then James Cameron would direct Terminator 2 with the, another uh, <laughs> pretty strong uh, mother f- figure saving the whole world as well. Isn't it, strange, isn't it strange that he had so many strong female characters and then he made true lies? I mean, it, it almost feels like he had some kind of a you know, some kind of a stroke or something. I, I, I honestly, I don't, I cannot figure it out. Most sexist films ever made. Everything else, it seems, he seems so balanced. I don't know. Yeah. And Sigourney Weaver, um, she actually comes back in Avatar now that I think about it, doesn't she? she they, they team up again in there. I, I know, I don't want to make anyone have to remember Avatar. But That's true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> She plays a kind of a maybe a slightly less uh, interesting character than than in Aliens. I agree. There's really something uh, special about the motherhood and kind of the strength and, and the courage in it. And also, but it's not one or the other. I mean, you have the maternal instincts, but you can also be a warrior. I mean, it's not a ch- it doesn't have to be a choice. Right. Exactly. No, that's true. Well, there are several more movies in in the book, but uh, I I will leave that to listeners to uh, to read for themselves. There any, any final thoughts as, as as we wrap up? I just I just wanted to mention that um, you know since since Molly brought up Crossing Delancey, um, it, it is one of the films mm. that I talk about at length in the book, and it's maybe of all the uh, all the movies in the book, it's my mother's favorite. It's maybe you know like I think it's just maybe her favorite movie. Period. Really. That chapter allowed me to explore, you know, questions about my Jewish identity. Like, what is the what is the pull that I have <laughs> towards that film and to films about cultural Jewishness when I don't have a very strong, if at all, um, religious um, aspect to myself. So, I do encourage people to watch that movie, especially since John McClane Silver um, died just a few months ago. It's a really special film, and yeah, it just gives me. A wonderful feeling every time I watch it. Like it, it, it makes me tear up, and it, it, I guess one of the one of one of the reasons I wrote that chapter is to figure out why. You know, why does this movie make me cry, and what mm-hmm. is what is my connection to my mother in that way? Well, it's a wonderful list. It's a wonderful book and a wonderful list, and everybody should be so grateful and eager to see all the films or receive them. Thank you so much. Um, and yes, I hope if anything, it makes people go, not just rewatch the films but reconsider this this type of film right? As a serious part of um, film culture. Yes, absolutely. Well, we'll wrap it up there. And that's Films of Endearment. Thank you, Michael, so much for talking about the book. Uh, and I know we've still only scratched the surface of the, of the different facets. And Molly, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about as well. Thank you both. Thank you both. I, I so enjoyed it. Thank you so much for, for, for talking about this, Molly. It means so much to have had this conversation with you. And thank you so much for having us, Nick. Yes, absolutely. And, and we'll, we'll keep talking. <laughs> yes, I hope so. Yes, next time. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets 
for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.